I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. You can follow along with me. It's on the screen there. Just a couple of verses. 1 Peter 2, 13 uh, through 17. Here's what it says. Be subject to the Lord, uh, I should say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your grace this morning, and we thank you for Jesus who gives us forgiveness and life. We thank you for your word, which reminds us of who you are and what you are doing. We ask God as we take some time this morning to think about your word and to read your word that you would give us hearts that are willing to believe, that you would give us hearts that are willing to trust you and what you have done for us, and that, God, you would give us by your Spirit a conviction of what needs to change in our hearts, ways in which we need to be more like Christ and less in disobedience. So, God, we pray this morning you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that you would help us to believe and love you more. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, as well as the first few verses of 1 Peter 3. And we are doing things a little bit different this morning. As you can see, we started and we're going to do the message. And after the message, which uh, uh, should be done here shortly, um, we'll have uh, two or three more songs. So uh, we're starting a little bit earlier in the message. If some of you are throwing... Some of you are like me, are kind of routine people. Anybody out here routine people like me? It's not that I'm routine. It's just like I've, I want everything done exactly the same way all the time. And that's, that's how I roll. And so I want you guys to know who your OCD alarms are just kind of going nuts right now. Yeah, we just did a couple of songs. We'll do some more songs at the end. It's okay every now and then to do things a little bit uh, different. Just a reminder about the people who received this letter from Peter long ago when it was first written. These are people who are being persecuted. These are people who are suffering. These are people who are receiving on themselves both through institutional forms of persecution as well as informal social forms of persecutions. They're receiving difficulty because of their faith in Christ. So there are some governmental ways in which they were suffering. Official, institutional ways that because they were Christians, they were dealing with hardship. But there were other things that were going on in life. Because they were Christians, things were just sort of harder. Now, there were informal sociological things. So you got a job and they got fired for whatever reason. But everybody knows what the real reason was. And they got neighbors. And back then, neighbors and neighborhoods functioned much more in continuity with one another. All of a sudden, they're on the outs. Nobody's going to come and help them. Uh, reap the harvest when their harvest is coming in and nobody's going to come and help them all of a sudden they're getting the cold shoulder everywhere and they don't have a place where they can go and buy their meat and they don't have a place where they can go and trade because suddenly they're on the outs and so these folks are under a pressure because of their faith in Christ not for other reasons but because they said Jesus died on the cross for their sins and he rose from the dead they say well why do you believe that Peter saw it. 
Who's Peter? That guy over there. Go talk to him. So they were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, and they were living based on the fact that they had seen Jesus risen, and then the result of that was they were experiencing some difficulty in their lives. And so Peter comes to them with this letter, and God is communicating to us, what do we do when we're living as Christians in a world that is not? What do we do when we live it to be believers in Christ when the world has turned their back on the Lord, which the world does from time to time? And there's three areas he covers. I'm going to give you all three areas right up front. And what you can decide to do is listen in on the one you want to listen in on, right? And generally what you're going to do is you're going to pick the one that you want to apply to the person sitting next to you, taking notes furiously. I'm going to go over this with them when we get home. First one, Christians in a non-believing world recognize authority is from God and it's the passage we just read that is governmental authority and I realize we're standing in southern Oregon some of you don't get it that's because you moved from California you have no idea what I'm talking about you'll get it in a while trust me I told this and my father rest in peace the guy wore his seatbelt until Oregon passed the seatbelt law oh really I gotta wear a seatbelt done maybe that helps is that, if you're from California and not sure what I'm talking about, well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Secondly, Christians in a non-believing world trust God's justice. This is where servants were being mistreated by their masters and they had no recourse. I'm a Christian and I'm a servant, a slave, and I am being mistreated, not just as a slave, that's bad enough, but as a Christian slave, so what do I do? What do I do? And finally, the last one, Christians in a non-believing world, finding beauty in the gospel, and that is women who were married and got saved, but their husbands had not. What do I do? Because now I'm married to a man who is not a Christian, and it's creating a lot of tension and difficulty in our marriage. What do I do there? Some very difficult situations these folks were facing, and I hope that in looking at these situations, it might help us in applying the gospel in our own Lives. Let's start, first of all, Christians in an unbelieving world recognize authority is from God. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor or the governors. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So parents, every now and then you may leave home and leave your children at home while you head out to the store or something like that. And you may say this to your kids, okay, I'm heading out. So-and-so is in charge. So-and-so is in charge. Whichever child you have deemed fit to be sort of in charge. That kid is in charge because they have the experience, because they have the expertise, because they have the knowledge that allows them to be in charge. Is this right? No. They are in charge. Why? Because you said so. And you need one person that when you get home, assuming the home is there, You need one person that you can go to and say, what in the world happened here? I put you in charge. And when that kid is in charge and the other kid isn't listening to them, their claim to authority is going to simply be, mom or dad said I'm in charge. I'm not making a claim on knowledge of experience or anything else. I am simply saying I have been given authority. And what God is saying about governmental authority is this. They're in charge. God has put the governmental authorities in place on purpose. And you say, but they're not very good at what they do. That's not what he said. 
He said the human authorities have been instituted, and so the authorities of the government have been granted to them by who? God. And it's a, it's a, a granting of authority. And so he is saying here, when you're living under governing authority, have your view be that governing authority is there because God put them there. Look at what it says in verse 16, right at the beginning. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And how he's saying here is, I want you to be free. I want you to understand, as people who have put their faith in Christ, you are now free from the penalty of sin. You are free from the worry of death. In fact, the only authority that is over you is God himself. So what do you do with the governing authority? He's saying here, that governing authority is a part of God's authority over you. So freely choose to live in submission to the governing authorities over you. Why is he saying this? This is why. Because the accusation of those believers during this time was, well, if they believe in Jesus, and Jesus is king of all things, obviously they are no longer going to obey the Roman emperor. And so they were being accused of being those who were trying to throw Rome off. They were being rebellious against the Roman Empire, which can be very deadly. And what Peter is saying is, that's a terrible thing to be accused of because as a Christian, you should actually be willing to submit to the authority of the Roman Empire. He said, live free, so freely choose to live under the authority of God's purposes. Look at verse 15. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. His will is that we as Christians live in a non-believing world under a non-believing government as good citizens. That we're good citizens in the country that we find ourselves in. That we do good and we serve God by doing his will even under governing authorities. Look at 16... And, or I should say 17, honor everyone, love the brother, brotherhood, that is other believers, fear God, and listen, this last sentence maybe drives some of you nuts. What's it say? Honor the emperor. Remember, the emperors of Rome varied in their honorability. Usually they were honorable not at all, and certainly not honorable in any sense of Christian thinking or faith in the Lord. So, God here is saying, honor the emperor, not because that, that authority figure is honorable. Why are we honoring the emperor in that sense? Because God has granted that individual authority, so we honor that God knows what he's doing. God has put governing authorities in place, and so we honor the fact that God has the ability to put governments in place as he sees fit. And some of us may question God's judgment from time to time. Because the Bible says quite clearly, God puts kings on thrones, and then God takes kings off of thrones, and it's at a whim, and it's, he does, it's no work for him at all to add a king, a president, a senator, or whatever. That's what he does. No big deal. We think it's a big deal. For him, it's a, what am I going to do this afternoon? Oh, new king here. What's on Netflix? That's what he might say. I mean, it's not a big deal to him. And we then go into all kinds of a tizzy fit, because God obviously has no idea what he's doing. And the Bible here calls us to honor what God is doing, not because the, the world around us or the governing authorities are honorable, but because we trust that God is up to something that's bigger than we might imagine. So Christians in the non-believing world, we recognize 
authority is from God. Let's just spend a little bit of a moment on authority and say, oh, thank you. That's what you were exactly you were hoping for, right? Here's the thing. Our culture does not believe in authority anymore. And by our culture, I mean you and me. So let's, we're not talking about the people out there. God makes a claim to authority. So I don't, I don't want to offend you too bad, but I just need to explain something to you. The Bible says God is God. And I know this is hard for us to think about, but this is really, really important. That means he wants everything exactly his way. And no other way ever. Now, is that bothersome to you? Well, that doesn't seem very collaborative. God is not collaborating. He just simply wants everything his way all the time. And what he would like us to do as people made in his image to voluntarily as an act of worship do everything his way all the time. And it's a claim to authority. In the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture in chapter 5 of Revelation 5 of a lamb who is alive but looks like he has been slain. Who is that? Jesus. Okay, good. Where is he? On a throne. When you're on a throne, do you ask permission for stuff? No. When you're on a throne, you tell people stuff. So we seem to, we, we can tend to think our response to the gospel is a decision of what we think is best. You know, I ought to believe in Jesus because I need forgiveness. We need to understand this. Jesus is in charge of everything in the universe. Jesus has absolute 100% authority over every molecule that has ever existed. You have two options recognize that authority and say, I believe him, and he actually is pretty awesome, or I can disobey God and reject him as Savior. We sometimes think when God comes to us with the good news of the gospel, he's selling something. He's trying to convince us he's got a really good offer and we ought to take him up on it. Now, let's be honest, it's a really good offer, right? Boy, you're, you're not convinced there. So I, I imagine in your mind, you're saying, no, it's a really good offer. He forgave you for everything you've ever done. Even that one thing on Thursday. You know what I'm talking about. Looking for the guy who's turning red. No, I'm kidding. I'm messing with you. It is a really good offer. He forgives us for everything we've ever done. Right? He brings us into heaven forever, and we get to reign with him, heirs to the kingdom of God. It's a pretty good deal. However, he's not selling it. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping we buy He is in complete authority. Those who disobey him reject his authority. They still remain under his authority. They just no longer remain in his presence. We call that hell. They are still under the authority of God, having rejected his authority. He said, well, you can reject the authority all day long. That does not change that God is, in fact, in authority over everything that exists or has ever existed. I can tell we're Americans. This bothers us. Does this not bother you? Shouldn't we get a vote? 
doesn't somewhere, somewhere someone have a veto on this guy? Is he really? Everything exists because he spoke it into being, including you and I. And he is claiming absolute authority. And this is, if, just let's be honest, with you, this is a little bit bothersome. We want to believe in Christ because that's the best way to live. Now, let's be honest, believing in Christ is the best way to live because now you don't have to worry about when it ends. However, the Bible's argument for why we ought to believe in God is very, very simple. It's this. Are you ready? He's God. And he's in charge of everything. Our job is to somehow get out of our rebellion and finally agree he's God, I'm not. How then do I, rec- how then do I participate in a relationship with him? Then I discover I can't because I'm such a big rebel. God says, don't worry about it. I've made a way for you to have a relationship with me through Christ. But we have to be very clear. Peter understood this. Jesus was a man of authority because he is God who is over all things. A Roman centurion came to Jesus. Do you remember this guy? He said, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus said, yeah, absolutely. I'm in. Let's go. And the guy said, what did the guy say? Do you remember? I am not worthy to have you come in my house. He said, I know how this works. I'm a, guy over, I'm, I'm a guy of authority. Listen, I got a guy over me. When he tells me to run, I run. When he tells me to jump, I say, how high? I also got guys under me. When I tell them to go, they go. When I tell them to come back, they come back. I know how authority works. Jesus, you're a man of authority. You say what? It happens. And what did Jesus say about this guy? There is not faith like this in all of Israel. He understands how the universe works. He understands I am the supreme authority, and if I want to tell somebody they're healed, they're healed. And it's not a matter of mystical, spooky magic stuff. It's, an, it's a, a matter of who is in charge. And Jesus is saying what? I'm in charge. As a result, Peter comes to us, and he says this. For the Lord's sake, look at verse 13 of chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This does not mean every human institution will do precisely what God wants all the time. Be aware that God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon on purpose for his purposes, yet Babylon did a lot of really, really bad stuff. But he's saying, for the Lord's sake, recognize every human institution. Live as free people under the Lord who freely, as an act of worship, submit as good citizens to the authority God has put in place. God ordains government authority. Okay, one little thing we need to recognize on this. Look at Acts chapter 5. I believe it's going to be up on the screens. A little story here, so we need to recognize. There's one little out on this that I am going to give you. I'm just giving this to you as Southern Oregonians. You just want a little bit of check on the authority, so I'll give you this one, okay? They brought them in, including Peter, and the high priest was questioning these guys. He'd been talking about Jesus all over the place, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, yeah, you killed him. Anyway, uh, Peter and the apostles answered this, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the governing authorities came to them and said, stop talking about Jesus. And they said, 
uh, what are we going to do, obey you or God? All right, so I'll give you this out. Are you ready? You don't have to obey the governing authorities. If they tell you to do something, God says not to do. Or if they tell you to not do something, God tells you to do. So using this passage, we'll apply it this way. If Medford PD tells you to stop preaching about Jesus on the corner, you can keep preaching about Jesus on the corner. Are we at risk of this happening? Probably not. But see, what we like to do is this. You know, I'm a Christian living in Southern Oregon, and so therefore, as a Christian living in Southern Oregon, I believe I am free, so therefore, I don't have to wear a seatbelt. Right? Because I'm a Christian living in Southern Oregon, and therefore I'm free. And so I am not going to obey the law because I'm a Christian. I've I got to obey God, not man. Listen, bro. Not wearing your seatbelt. He said, well, that's a silly example. We do this kind of stuff all the time. Why well, do I have to pay my taxes? Because the government is going to use it for evil stuff. So I'm going to lie on my taxes. What did Jesus have to say about that? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Now it's getting now it got a little quieter. We didn't mind the seatbelt deal. All right, so if you are in the process of sharing your faith and the government tells you you are not allowed to share your faith, you can go ahead and share your faith and we will visit you in jail. Okay? But you are welcome. Outside of that, right now, I don't have a whole lot of other outs for you. Christians in a non-believer world, we recognize authority is from God and we serve God and we honor God by recognizing the authority he has placed over us. One of the ways Christians can be distinct in our culture is learn in a democratic republic how to honor even when we want to share our strongly held personal political views. This is something our culture has completely abandoned. Do we have the ability to have a robust conversation with somebody about our strongly held personal views in such a way that they know we honor the authority God has placed. If we cannot do that in such a way that recognizes to the other person that we honor the authority that God has put in place, what should we do? Log out of Facebook, all right? No, I'm serious. If, if somebody would read your strongly held personal opinions or hear your strong held, held personal opinions and they would say, this person does not honor Governor Kate Brown. Oh, now it's... Listen, this is you and me both, right? You and me both. I'm not saying we got to agree. And we're not going to talk politics. I'm applying something specific here. Do we honor them? So I don't have to honor that person. I, I know some of the emperors that Peter had to operate under one of them what was his name i forget anybody know nero i think he killed him and peter's charge was you can behead me and i will disagree with you but i will die with the world knowing i honored that god put you where you are and we need to figure out how to that's one of the ways we can be distinct in our culture say okay you've got strong opinions you've got that's interesting but I recognize something different about you. You're expressing yourself in a way that honors authority. And we need to get a little bit better at that as believers. I mean, you might disagree with me, and that's quite okay. I honor your ability to not be right. <laughs> that's terrible. 
couple hundred years after Peter, Emperor Julian wrote this, just as one little aside to it, he was having a lot of troubles with Christians. He drove them nuts. And when it came right down to it, it was one of his letters he wrote. Here's the problem he had. You know what the problem he had was? He said, here's the problem. They feed their poor and they feed our poor. Because Rome wasn't doing a good job feeding their poor. And this is the way Christians can engage. They can say, no, wait, fine, you be in charge. Well, we're going to take care of our business. We're going to recognize authority, and we're going to be good citizens and good community members in such a way that we will be distinctly uh, honorable. Christians in a non-believing world recognize authority is from God. Okay, let's keep moving on. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that if, as Christians, we just keep our head down, do the right thing, everything will work out, right? We learn in the next section, it doesn't always work out. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. I'm going to read it. Uh, It's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth reading. Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Christians in a non-believing world trust God's justice. Believers in a non-Christian world, or I should say Christians in a non-believing world, trust God's justice. The slavery system in Rome certainly was uh, significantly different than slavery we experienced in our country because the primary difference was slavery in Rome was not based on ethnicity. Anyone of any ethnicity could find themselves in slavery either by birth or by indebtedness. Other than that, the similarities are very similar. There were some servants who were in terrible, terrible conditions and would be in terrible conditions their entire life. There were other servants that would live in very good conditions. Many were highly educated, many physicians and uh, accountants and professional uh, people in Rome would have been servants. But there were also many servants who did uh, horrible tasks nobody else wanted to do and were mistreated for the balance of their entire life. And the question is, for a servant who gets saved and is serving a master who is terrible, what do I do? That's a difficult situation to find yourself in. And these are the things that Peter challenges these folks to do. Verse 19 says simply this, endure sorrow while suffering. The first thing to do is be mindful of God and endure. He says, having God in mind, 
look at your suffering, and the first thing to do is say, how do I endure suffering, not necessarily look for an exit plan? Now, that could be an option, but it's not in this passage, it's in, in another one. Being mindful of God, endure. Then look at what it says in verse 8. Servants, be subject to your masters with respect. And all of these things seem very counterintuitive to us. We would say, well, why in the world would you make these arguments? And he makes it plain why he does that in verse 21. He says, because this is what Jesus did when he came. He endured suffering as a servant in order to, for, to provide to us our salvation. Jesus endured providing to you an example of what endurance looks like that you might endure in your suffering. Let me just one aside on servanthood and slavery that we might be saying. Why didn't Peter just simply say, you know what we ought to do is get rid of slavery? That would have made him a lot more sense, wouldn't it? Of course it would have. Peter could have written a very long and lengthy and uh, uh, well-thought-out, well-reasoned gospel explanation why slavery is abhorrent. But put yourselves in the shoes of a, a slave. You come to Peter. You've just suffered an unjust beating. And you say to Peter, I don't know what to do here, bro. I mean, I'm not sure how to approach this. I'm a Christian. I'm in this situation. What should I do? And Peter says to you helpfully, you know, we should abolish slavery. And what is the slave going to say? Say, you know what? That's great. So let's do that. Until then... How do I make it through Monday? So on the one hand, it, it creates a tension in us. Why didn't Peter here take the opportunity to write a long, well-thought-out reason of why slavery shouldn't exist? The reason is that's not what that guy needed right there. What he needed in that moment was, does God see? And what Peter argues in the moment for this slave in that moment is not some high and mighty, here's what culture ought to be like. He says, in your place of injustice, God sees every stripe on your back. God sees and God knows, and in fact, more than that, he knows precisely what that is like because God has endured the greatest injustice himself on the cross that you yourself might receive forgiveness. So Peter actually is here seeking to provide the greatest benefit to people in this situation, which is this. God sees and knows, and you have the significant honor in the place of injustice of walking the same footsteps Jesus did. He ascribes then to servants a sense of honor that someone outside of that situation wouldn't have because he is saying, you are walking in footsteps Jesus did, and many will not have that as difficult as it might be. That is to say, Peter here says, I want to give you help from the gospel for what is, not what we wish it was. What we should recognize in this is all of us have experienced unjust suffering. We have suffered because something happened that was not fair. Is it just me? Anybody else? And the question is, in that moment, what do we do? And what Peter calls us to do is be mindful of God, be aware of the suffering of Christ, and in fact, even seek to say, you know what? 
you have been unfair to me, it doesn't mean I have to denigrate your character because I know Jesus sees all. And one day, all of these wrongs will be made right. He even makes this argument. If you are going to suffer, make sure it's not just. I got to be honest with you about something the other day. I was driving down the road, and my wife called me, and I answered the phone. Yeah, exactly. I get it from my dad. Oh, it's illegal to answer the phone? So I answer the phone, and Jackson County, was it's on Vilas Road, and he turns around, and uh, he pulled me over. I, anybody, this is an aside now, but anybody else had this experience now when you get pulled over, you're like, did you just get out of high school? I mean, I know this guy was, what, 12. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't. It's just you get to a certain point in your life where all of a sudden the, the people in authority are like, yeah, I'll... I said, you know why I pulled her over? I said, yeah, I talked to my wife on the phone. She said, you know that's illegal. I said, yes, I do, and I shouldn't have done it. I mean, I shouldn't have done it, right? And, uh, but I answered the phone, and, and uh, I thought, I was, yeah, I admit to it. You got me guilty. Take me in. Um, he go look at my record, clean record, as far as I remember. And uh, <laughs> he come back and give me a warning. Holy cow. He didn't give me a warning. Give me a ticket. Let me just tell you, put the Bluetooth in. Not because it's right or wrong that it's illegal to talk on the phone. It's expensive. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. And so, you know, now you guys, I, I say this to the guys, maybe the women are this way too. And I had come up with about 10,000 reasons on my way from there to Costco why that was wrong. That if, you know, and, and I'm coming, because on the back of the ticket, you can write why you shouldn't get that ticket, you know. And I've got a list. I'm like, I'm going to need extra paper. And guess what it comes right down to? How could I have gotten out of that ticket? Don't answer the phone. Right? I don't answer that phone. I never get that ticket. And this is the argument he's making to these servants. He's saying, listen, there are some masters that are morons and brutal and rude, and they're going to beat you, and you're going to say, God, have mercy. I hope you see every blow. He says this, but some of you servants are making it really easy for them to have a reason to do it. Do your job. Stay after it. Be faithful, even though they're faithless. Be generous and honorable, even though they're stingy and dishonorable. So if you're going to be punished, make sure you are being punished because you did something wrong. Don't give opportunity. Make sure your suffering is, in fact, unjust. Don't go to work and say, I got persecuted because I'm a Christian. You say, no, you got persecuted because you didn't do your job. There's a difference between the two. And he's saying, do your job, and then a lunch break, share your faith. And if you get persecuted for that, say, praise the Lord, I'm getting persecuted. But don't go to work and not work all day and get fired and say, they fired me because I love Jesus. You might love Jesus, yes. You also need to love getting after it at work. So unjust suffering, remember, ensure that your suffering is, in fact, unjust. Secondly, when we suffer... Be aware that God sees, God hears, God knows, and he is gracious to allow us to endure suffering that he endured. And a day will come when he returns where all of the injustice we suffered will be undone. And all of those who have been unjust, who are not in Christ, will reap the reward for their injustice. 
Jesus, in fact, is glorified when we are able to copy him by enduring injustice because he endured injustice from us. While we strayed away, he watches over our souls and says, I will endure injustice for you. Will you endure injustice for me? Christians in a non-believing world trust God's justice. All the things that have been done against us one day will be undone. And we can trust he has seen it and he knows it. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Christians in a non-believing world. What were the first two? Recognizing authority is from God. Many of you didn't like that. Second one, Christians in a non-believing world trust God's justice. Another set of you didn't like that. And then the rest I'll get with this one. Christians in a non-believing world find beauty in the gospel. Listen, let's read it. Well, I'll read it. You listen. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external and through the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear, but instead let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as uh, the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers might not be hindered. All right, some of you thought the first two were a little dicey. Again, we have here Christians in the non-believing world. So what is happening here is women have gotten saved and their husbands are not. So that's the context of 1 Peter. Uh, a woman hears of the good news of the gospel, and she says, I believe, I trust Christ for forgiveness, and now she has a husband who is not a believer. Like we've said, this is the same contrast we've seen before. We see believers operating in a non-believing world with a government. We see believers operating in a non-believing world with a non-believing master. And now we have women operating in a non-believing world with a husband who is not a Christian. And in each of these cases, what we might notice is culturally, especially at that time, the believer in that moment is the vulnerable one. So in Roman culture, the person under the Roman emperor is vulnerable. Rome has all the authority. In the servant-master relationship, the, the servant is vulnerable to the master. And in the marriage relationship, especially in the first century, the women in that marriage were vulnerable both to the men as well as the culture at large. And so in these contexts where a person is a Christian and vulnerable, he's trying to answer the question, how do you live? And he gives very practical and useful advice to a woman in that situation saying, love your husband. Serve your husband as an effort to show the glory of Christ to your husband. Seek to win your husband by your conduct, meaning seek to uh, express the love of Christ to your spouse by the way in which you live with your spouse. 
how did Jesus demonstrate his love to the body of Christ and to the world at large? He, he was willing to serve, and he is willing to uh, look out for the best interests of others. And what Peter is calling these folks to do is say, look, I want you, by your conduct, look to communicate the truth of the gospel to your husband. Communicate the, the, the love of Christ in how you conduct yourself in your house. That is this. Not saying, well, since I am now in Christ, I can walk away from my marriage. He doesn't believe Jesus, so I don't need him any longer. He doesn't believe in Jesus, so I no longer have to live in communion and harmony with him. We're going to live in the same home, but in separate. Uh, we're going to live separate. And what Peter is saying, no, allow your love in Christ now to have a positive influence on your uh, spouse. Win them by your conduct. Allow the beauty of your life not merely to be your external beauty, but to be a heart that is set on Christ alone. I want you to note there, he didn't say, don't comb your hair, put jewelry in. He's saying, don't allow your adorning to only be that. Allow your primary beauty for all of us to come from where our, our heart is. Understand what is going on. Look at what it says here, if I can find, yeah, verse 1. Be subject to your husbands so that if they, some don't obey the word, and obedience there is a, the idea of reading and hearing and understanding the gospel. Obedience to the truth and claims of Christ. What do we do in that situation? I'm going to let God handle it, and I'm going to serve in my home like I would serve in my community as a Christian, seeking to bless my community with the good news of the gospel. I want to bless my home and my non-believing husband with the good news of the gospel in my conduct. Win them through Christ-likeness and gentleness. To give this example, submit to your husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, what's hard to know is exactly what he's referring to there. It's not abundantly clear, and this is my best guess. So I'm open to your input, but not now. You can send me your email. You just don't have time for it. Here's what I think he's saying. Abraham did a couple of things with his wife that were questionable in terms of not awesome husband material. So they went on a trip, and I don't know if you know this from the Bible, but Sarah was kind of a hottie. Abraham knew this. He said, yeah, we're going to go into Egypt. The king of Egypt's going to kill me and take you. I've got an idea. Let's pretend we're not married. And you can see Sarah going, really? I mean, you can imagine this conversation. It didn't go great. <laughs> what? Surprise, surprise. It didn't, it didn't go great. And so, of course, he learned his lesson and never did that again, right? You know this, so you know the story. Yeah. Genius Abraham, I've got an idea. And, and what Peter is saying here is, listen, we know, especially when we have a husband or a wife in, in our culture who is not sharing our views as a Christian, they're going to go places where we say, I'm not sure about this. And what Peter is saying here is don't pull out the I'm with Jesus card, I don't love you anymore. He's saying, as Sarah did, in patience and willingness to wait for the work of the Lord, 
continue to foster an open and loving and supporting relationship together with the hope that one day that grace that he receives from you will capture his heart and he will put his faith in Christ. And one of the greatest ways we can share the gospel with people around us, whether it be our husbands, whether it be our wives, whether it be our children or our extended family, is by being gracious and loving people, especially with those who have views very different than ours. We don't necessarily have to go to a family gathering to spoil for a fight, do we? We could go in there and say, I'm going to find that one person that disagrees with me so vehemently, and when they leave here, they're going to wonder whether or not we agree or not because I'm going to be so nice to them. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to ask them what they want to drink. I'm going to get their plate of food for them. And they're going to say, what's wrong with you? They've got some Jesus in me. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to serve the, the hardest people to serve, and, and you're that guy. <laughs> you might not want to say it. I don't know. So Peter here is being very practical to wives because one of the, the women may be saying, well, I'm married to a non-Christian now, so maybe I'm supposed to leave the home. And a woman leaving her home would find herself exposed. Would she be able to have housing? Would she be able to find food? And Peter's saying, no, you're fine. Stay there. Love your husband. Communicate the gospel through your loving and graciousness to your husband. But what do we do when both the husband and the wife are Christians? Look at verse 7. Husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So he comes to husbands, especially husbands in this context, who have wives who are believers, and he says to them, husbands, honor your wives, recognizing they're the weaker vessel. And what he's saying there recognize what we're, we've already said about citizens, servants, and women in that culture. They are vulnerable in that culture. They have fewer opportunities, and outside of the home could be very exposed to danger and an inability to even care for themselves. He's saying, husbands, recognizing in this particular culture that women are vulnerable and exposed in your home, honor them. And they say, well, how should I honor them? Cast your vision into heaven into the kingdom of God, where he says, when you stand on the streets of heaven and your wife is standing next to you, you will, in fact, discover she is not the junior partner you thought she was. What does it say? Do you see what it says there? Heirs with you of the grace of life. How is that qualified? What, what limitation does he put on that for women? Are you, did you find it yet? There isn't one. He is saying this, and, and one commentator said this about this passage, Peter being brilliantly subversive to the culture. Men, cast your mind into heaven and recognize in glory we're all co-heirs of the gospel, so therefore treat one another today what the future looks like. Honor our husbands, honor our wives, knowing that one day in glory we are both co-heirs of the kingdom. I had better not treat my spouse as a junior partner, knowing when we get into glory, Jesus won't. The idea here is to treat the people in our homes the way that they are going to be treated forever. It's opening our eyes to what eternity looks like, 
and seeking to live that way now. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? The culture then, and even now to a large degree, views women differently than men. And believing men don't. Believing men look at their wife and see a co-heir to the kingdom of God. They look at their wife and say, we're going to stand on the streets of heaven and people aren't going to greet me first the way they do nowadays here. Anybody notice that? Maybe that's just what happens sometimes around here. But oh yeah, what are, what are you? I'm so-and-so's wife. In heaven, you are Jesus' child. Each one of us. And so we are called, regardless of how the culture tells us to treat one another, to treat one another as co-heirs of the kingdom of God. I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to bother you, but I think I already have. So there is clearly, especially in many of Jesus' parables, an idea that based on our faithfulness here will influence our experience in heaven. Are we all on the same page with this? When we get to heaven, heaven's going to be awesome. Nobody's going to think heaven is lame. I promise you that. Heaven will not be the same, th same for everybody. Are we clear? As one uh, teacher told me once, everybody's cup in heaven will be full. Everybody's cup will be a different size. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Our faithfulness here will influence our, our reward in heaven. The Bible says it clearly in Corinthians. Some will get to heaven and their reward will be great. Others will be get to heaven and it will be like they were jumping through the fire. Think of it this way. Do you think that you're going to outrank your wife in heaven? You might want to treat her since the way you, how am I saying this? Since you don't know, maybe we would operate today knowing that we don't know. And that's, what we, that's clearly what we're saying. Live with our wives in an understanding way. Look at eternity. How then would I treat my wife knowing one day we will be together in heaven and the current cultural constructs of men, women, wife, and husband will not exist? Jesus is saying, treat my wife with that in mind then. How would I treat my spouse? How would you treat your spouse knowing that when we get to heaven, that relationship will be defined differently? Live with her and live with them in an understanding way. I've got to tell you, in the first century, people would have read this and said, this is mind-blowing. This is husbands intentionally seeking to do what we read also over in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, and he gave his life up for her. Christians in a non-believing world find beauty in the gospel. Wives to a non-believing husband find beauty in the gospel by allowing the grace of Christ to be their beauty, to seek to draw their husbands into relationship with him. Husbands, love with your wives in an understanding way, meaning because of the power of the gospel, I don't need my security to be found in being the master of my home, where I walk in and things just fall into place according to my deemed purpose. I can walk into my home, you can walk into your home and say, how do I die today? And that could apply for both men and women. Okay, a couple of things to end on. You're like, please, thank you. Jesus sees the vulnerable. Jesus will expose power abuse. For those of us who are vulnerable in our work, in our home, in our relationships, we need to be comforted and rest in the fact Jesus sees every minute of it, okay? He sees every minute of it.
all wrongs will be made right. Pray that God would deliver you, but if he says for you to endure, endure knowing every difficulty is being seen and will be addressed at one time. Some of us, though, have significant influence and power over others in our homes, in our workplaces, in our businesses, in our community. This also needs to be a warning to us. God will one day expose all power abuse. Make sure when we are given influence in our culture and in our community, we use it the way Christ did to serve and benefit others. When it comes to our government, we should speak, we should object, we should argue, we should vote. We should, according to the word of God, honor the authority God has established. Honor the authority God has established. I think there's room in our day for us as Christians to grow in this area of saying, I may disagree, I may have strongly held opinions, I may have strongly held opinions that are informed by the Bible, but I will be one who honors those who are in charge. Injustice, pray for deliverance, seek justice, but trust that God sees all. Don't fall into the temptation of seeking your own revenge. As one author put it, do not commit the crime for which you currently serve the sentence. In our beauty, we can seek to be known by our stuff. I am important because I wear certain kinds of clothes. I am important because I have a certain kind of way of presenting myself. I drive a certain kind of car. My house looks a particular way. I align with certain people in terms of politics and opinions. And the Bible calls us into adornment in a different way. Allow our status to be doing stuff Jesus does. And what's the kind of stuff Jesus does? Hanging around people below our social station, serving others who don't deserve it, enduring injustice without complaint, doing stuff Jesus does. The Bible calls us to allow our adornment, our beauty to emanate from saying, what is the kind of stuff Jesus does and how can I do that in my home and in my community? And that primarily means serving people who don't deserve it at a cost we can't afford. Finally, just reflecting on Jesus. Jesus honors God. Jesus trusted the Father, even in the moment of greatest injustice. And Jesus, I would argue, is the greatest and most beautiful demonstration of humble service ever given. And perhaps his beauty can inspire us to serve in the same way. Will you join me as we pray?